Machine. My name is Noah, and I'm here with Emily and Rob to discuss reviews, and especially bad reviews, along with the reviewers, good and bad in their own right, who review them. On that topic, don't forget to leave us a good review on iTunes or on whatever platform you use, and while you're deciding how many stars to give us, recall the slightly paraphrased words of Kurt Vonnegut. I have long felt that any reviewer who expresses rage and loathing for a novel or play or poem or podcast is preposterous. He or she is like a person who has put on a full suit of armor and attacked a hot fudge sundae or a banana split. <laughs> and with that, here's Emily with our first fact. <laughs> that was really cute. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Noah. This week, I learned that the Nobel Prize exists because Alfred Nobel, its founder and funder, saw a particularly bad review of himself. Ooh. That's yeah. unfortunate. So this fact is predicated on the idea that obituaries are the closest that you can get to an unvarnished review of someone's life and legacy. And that is exactly what Alfred Nobel saw when he opened the newspaper one fateful morning in April 1888, um, when he encountered his own obituary. Mm. And he was clearly not dead at the time. So the incident was a mix-up. Uh, his brother Ludwig had passed away a few days earlier, and a couple of newspapers apparently got some inaccurate intel. Uh, one of these mistaken obituaries particularly struck Alfred. It was, to my dismay, in a French newspaper, and the headline read, <laughs> Le Marchand de la Mort et et mort. <laughs> Something wow, like that. that. Was so good. Très bien, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Merci beaucoup. But the translation of that in English, my comfort zone, is The Merchant of Death is Dead. So this harsh title was in reference to his chemistry work in developing a more stable, commercially usable form of nitroglycerin. Um, and this research actually resulted in various incidents and fatalities, including that of his younger brother, Emil, but ultimately remedied the issue uh, through the invention of dynamite, which retained all the firepower of pure nitroglycerin while being safer to handle and transport. Over the course of his career, Nobel accrued 355 patents and pioneered the manufacturing and application of explosives in mining and infrastructure building. However, despite his being a vocal pacifist and professing a hope that his inventions would actually bring an end to war, by his death, his business consisted of over 90 armaments factories. Wow. wow. So, hence the merchant of death. I can't help but feel like the guy who invented Tide Pods is in for a similar fate, where he yeah. feels like his life's work was so great, and it'll be like, the merchant of death is dead. <laughs> there will be no more Tide Pod fatalities. <laughs> the merchant of detergent. I wonder if, uh, I wonder <laughs> if we... merchant of detergent. <laughs> <laughs> That's so much better than what I was going to say. <laughs> so, given all that, uh, Alfred Nobel was unsurprisingly pretty perturbed by this sneak preview of his legacy and, intent upon changing it, wrote up a last will and testament that bequeathed the portion of his estate not given to his relatives to a fund. Um, in quotes from his will, the interest on which shall be annually distributed in the form of prizes to those who, during the preceding year, shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. 
Uh, specific instructions were given on how the interest was meant to be divided, five ways to five individuals of indiscriminate nationalities, each representing the highest level of human achievement in the fields of physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature, and, again in quotes, the person who shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. So take that, obituary writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or good job, obituary writers. That's true. <laughs> yeah, we got him. <laughs> that, was, that was their game all along. <laughs> so upon his death in 1896, uh, the discovery of his unusual will and its unusual stipulations was at first met with resistance. Because he had just sat down and written it one afternoon in Paris, there were no executors, and no one in his family had even known about it. Actually, his 25-year-old assistant, Ragnar Solman, um, was appointed as executor and literally rode the Nobel Prize Fund money through the streets of Paris to the Swedish embassy. Um, he has an account of having stashed all the money uh, in a horse-drawn carriage, uh, which he rode while carrying a revolver. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> And although he didn't have any children, Nobel's relatives weren't super pleased about the relatively small portion of his estate um, that had been designated for their inheritance. So they got about 6% of an estate that today would be valued at about $200 million. Um, and the Swedish royal family was also not happy about this either because the award wasn't limited to Swedes. Um, and the institutes that he appointed to manage and dole out these rewards, so the Swedish Academy of Sciences for Chemistry and Physics and the Karolinska Institute for Physiology and Medicine, had no idea this responsibility was being foisted upon them and subsequently had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> Um, but despite all of this chaos and confusion, the Nobel Foundation was formed in 1900 and the first Nobel Prize was awarded in 1901, five years after Nobel's legacy-changing will was first read. Something about this story just kind of reminded me of a very famous piece of literature where a man sees the legacy he leaves behind and changes his life. Um, and that was Charles Dickens' <laughs> A Christmas Carol. Yes. And in my head I was trying to place where, where they happened chronologically. Um, wondering if one was inspired by the other. But actually, uh, I just looked up that it was 1843 when A Christmas Carol came out. So 40 years, 45 years before the premature obituary for Nobel. Mm -hmm. But there are striking parallels between the two stories. It's the sort of thing where I think, especially in older newspapers, it probably happened quite a bit. But I think even in newer newspapers, mistakes get made all the time. And it's kind mm -hmm. of fascinating. So Wikipedia has a list of premature obituaries. Um, and I thought like, oh, this will be a quick list. There are hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hundreds of people with like... <laughs> it's a long list. <laughs> it includes such people as um, Beyonce, Jerry Seinfeld, Fidel Castro, Dick Cheney, um, just a real Hillary Clinton, an, an impressive list of very famous people. And so I was looking for kind of events that really stood out. And, and the one that just caught my attention that I had never heard of was called the CNN.com incident. This was just absolutely <laughs> incredible. And you wonder like how when someone dies, they come out with this amazing obituary so quickly and CNN.com spoiled it for everyone. Basically, CNN.com prepared pre-written draft memorials for several world figures. And those drafts were leaked because it was in a developmental area of CNN's website that didn't require a password and may have been oh. accessible for like for anyone. Wow. And so the pages included <laughs> tributes to Fidel Castro, Dick Cheney, Nelson Mandela, Bob Hope, Gerald Ford, Pope John Paul II, and Ronald Reagan. And it just had like a lot of filler text because they hadn't died yet. And so it came it came to be apparent that it just said they all died in 2001. 
um, and that they had all kind of worked off the same draft, which it seems like was originally the obituary for Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Um, and so it has all kinds of random things about her and their like incomplete obituaries. And so some of the quotes were, Dick Cheney was described as the UK's favorite grandmother. <laughs> and uh, Fidel Castro was described as a lifeguard, athlete, and movie star. <laughs> because there was the, the text. Reagan. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> So another really good example of, uh, of these premature obituaries is uh, Ernest Hemingway. So, so as the story goes, uh, in 1954, uh, Hemingway and his wife were on a trip in Africa, and they chartered this sightseeing flight uh, in the Congo, and just on this flight, uh, the plane struck an abandoned utility pole and crash-landed. And Hemingway received like head wounds, and his wife broke two ribs, and apparently like the press worldwide found out about this and uh, reported it as if Hemingway and his wife had both died but they hadn't uh, and it, the next day attempting to reach medical care in Entebbe they boarded a second plane that exploded at takeoff where Hemingway suffered burns and another concussion and this one was serious enough to quote cause leaking of cerebral fluid oh okay my God. this is this gets just crazier and crazier they eventually actually made it to Entebbe to find reporters who were covering the story of his death. He was able to tell the reporters, despite his leaking cerebral fluid, <laughs> that he was not dead. Uh, and then for the next few weeks, he was just recuperating um, and reading his erroneous obituaries. And despite those injuries, Hemingway then um, accompanied a friend, as long as well as his wife, on a fishing expedition. When a bushfire broke out, he was again injured and suffered second-degree burns on his legs, front torso, lips, left hand, and right forearm. And the full extent of his injuries were two cracked discs, a kidney and liver rupture, a dislocated shoulder, and a broken skull. Yeah, the the follow-up to that that I also saw is that he made a scrapbook compiling all these obituaries, which he then took to reading uh, every day over breakfast with a glass of champagne. Right. So I feel like, you know, it's... Healthy. From the sounds of it, you know, every morning was something to celebrate for him, given how frequently he almost died. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the one premature obituary story that uh, I found that I thought was kind of entertaining uh, regards a gentleman named Titan Leeds. So in the 18th century, he published an almanac that competed with, to us these days, a better-known almanac, uh, specifically Poor Richards, the one written by Ben Franklin. Um, and Ben, ever the epitome of class, made fun of his rival Titan by predicting Titan's death in Poor Richards um, <laughs> at 3.29 p.m. on October 17th, 1733. So the appointed hour and date arrived and Titan didn't die um, and then used that as fodder to promote his almanac as being more accurate in comparison to Ben's, which I think is fair and probably, you know, a deserved punishment. But um, rather than, you know, take that correction gracefully, Ben instead opted to double down on his assessment um, and ran an obituary for Titan in Poor Richards and continued to insist that Titan was dead uh, every year until he actually died five years later, at which point Poor Richards ran a notice congratulating Titan's almanac for finally acknowledging his death and getting it right. Oh my gosh. So again, the epitome of class. So I don't know if you guys saw this story. There was an Australian woman named Noella Ricundo. This was this was a news story that ran in 2016 in several several sources. It reads like this: Noella Ricundo sat in a car outside her home in Melbourne, Australia, watching as the last few mourners filed out. They were leaving a funeral, her funeral. 
the story goes on that she waits for her husband to leave the house, steps outside, and he reacts with horror. She says, is it my eyes? Is it a ghost? Surprise, I'm still alive. (laughs) (laughs) And what had happened, apparently, was her husband had paid a team of hitmen to kill her. Oh, wow. And she had somehow convinced them not to and told them that they would get their money and then she would still be alive and he would go to jail, which is exactly what happened. (laughs) So she talked her way out of being murdered by hitmen. Her husband paid an inane amount of money. Wow. And then he went to prison for the rest of his life. That's so crazy. How is that not a movie? That's yeah. a badass. That's a yeah. <laughs> yeah. On this list that we've been drawing from, the list of premature obituaries on Wikipedia, there's just one good sentence. Um, <laughs> uh, was, Paul McCartney was proclaimed dead in 1969, parenthesis, though McCartney was supposed to have been killed in 1966, in parenthesis, like the writer of this Wikipedia article, who, like, who was this. planning on that. And he, like, paid all the money for the hit. Thwarted. We're already three years late. It does sound kind of exasperated. It's like, though McCartney was supposed to have been killed in 1966, like I wanted... Do you guys know about the uh, the kind of like deep levels of lore surrounding Paul McCartney's supposed death? Oh no! I feel like it comes up a lot in trivia, mostly when you're hosting. Yeah. Never <laughs> ever know it, so please tell us. Sure. So yeah, so he supposedly died. I think it was in a car crash um, in 1966 because it was prior to Sgt. Pepper's, which came out, I believe, in 67 or 68. But regardless, part of the lore about this conspiracy theory about. Uh, Paul McCartney being dead was that he was replaced by a supposed perfect lookalike named Billy Shears, um, who appears uh, at the uh, end of Sgt. Pepper's. The one the transition to Billy Shears. Exactly, to, with a little help from my friends. So that fed like part of the controversy. Um, also, uh, the album Abbey Road, where you see the formers of the Beatles walking across the crosswalk in that kind of iconic cover. Um, Paul McCartney was shoeless, and for some reason that also fed into the idea that he was dead um and of course john lennon ever being a joker and opting to feed into this craziness um at the end of the song i'm so tired on the white album uh actually recorded uh paul is dead miss him miss him miss him and then that was tacked onto the end of the song backwards so that people <laughs> who would then play the album be like oh my god there's a message they're telling us it's true and you know it was done purposefully because that's who john lennon was um that's cool but yeah Good times. <laughs> this week I learned Rick Polito, writer of one of the most wry and hilarious movie synopses of all time with his 1998 summary of The Wizard of Oz, um, had his review go viral in 2012 on Twitter. He became an internet sensation. He worked for George Takai, and now he's a stay-at-home dad. That's the dream. Yeah, nice. he's doing it right. <laughs> So just to get us on the same page, I will read you this review. Um, You've all seen The Wizard of Oz? Yes. Okay. Rick Polito does an excellent job of condensing the movie down to its most basic elements. Transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first woman she meets, (laughs) then teams up with three complete strangers to kill again. (laughs) Can't argue with that. And this is kind of the thing that... Uh, Polito made himself famous for. Uh, He worked for kind of a small town newspaper. He wrote these reviews. Um, They ran out all the time. And his synopses were like kind of intentionally misleading um, just to be humorous because they were filling a spot in like a TV guide that no one else really cared about. Um, And so he wrote that in 1998. And it wasn't until 2012 
that Twitter found it, and someone posted a picture of it, highlighted in yellow highlighter, and it got millions of retweets. And all of a sudden, Rick Polito was this, this individual who everyone wanted, and everyone wanted to talk to and figure out what had he done. And the answer was, he had continued writing comedy, um, working for a small-town newspaper, doing his own things, um, and eventually just started a Facebook page where he wrote kind of funny synopses, but that was pretty much it. <laughs> and so he had a bunch of interviews, and in one of them he revealed, because of the fame he'd gotten from the Wizard of Oz synopsis, he was connected with George Takei, and he wound up writing jokes for George Takei's social media accounts. And like he has a, a fan following that's very strong, and so some of the fans were very upset to learn that what they thought was George Takei's humor might actually be this contract um, Rick Polito yeah. humor. And so even with this, like a second kind of spike in popularity or his name being used, uh, he was never able to really turn it into a job or a career. So he runs his own Facebook page, which is called That TV Guy, at That Polito Guy on Facebook. Uh, so really, like, for, for such a, what I thought was a wonderful synopsis, and he has so many others that he wrote, and he kind of inspired this whole, I've, I've used it in trivia actually before as rounds of, like, uh, bad movie synopsis, you have to guess the movie. Um, and it is trivia gold. It is such <laughs> a fun round to do. But he, he really just has, in an in interview, said, you know, I couldn't make a job out of it. I tried to work for different networks and publications, and nothing really stuck, and so I'm just kind of doing my own thing. Cool. So, uh, inspired by him, there are a lot of lists, you know, online, BuzzFeed, etc., where people do this uh, to hilarious effect. And so I thought I would uh, quiz you guys. I would, uh, people will, like, hashtag explain a film plot badly, mm. uh, and you guys can guess what the movie is. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so, a white child is told he is special, then he goes to private school. Harry Potter? It's Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah, of exactly. Course. <laughs> oh, man. So next, Pocahontas with blue people. Avatar. Avatar. Yeah, obviously <laughs> Avatar. This one, a young man forcibly binds other men and photographs them for money. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Emily, you're great at this. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to do a hidden talent here. <laughs> All right, how about this one? Miserable billionaire terrorizes mentally ill man. Is that Batman? Batman. Batman. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the Joker. That's great. Um, <laughs> That's great. Adopted kid's older brother won't let him hold the hammer. Thor. That's Thor. Thor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, an uncle kills a child's father, so a pig and a big rat help him get revenge. <laughs> big and a big rat. I thought this would be the most obvious one. Oh, the Lion King. Yeah, it's the Lion King. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Timon and Pumbaa. like, that sounds Hamlet-y. Wait a minute. <laughs> so I did find... He has a bunch posted. I found a couple other original Politos, which I thought were pretty pretty fantastic. Um, a small-town real estate operator sells his neighbors on a suburban sprawl development only to have the money mysteriously disappear at the end, setting the stage for a too-big-to-fail bailout. Is that Shrek? No. Okay, I'm pretty sure no. <laughs> never mind, never mind. It's in the subtext that I really missed in Shrek. <laughs> so this was It's a Wonderful Life. My favorite oh, Christmas movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, I have one, one more that came out a few years ago. At the 30th year anniversary of the movie, a theory has emerged that the only person in school that day was the vice principal, and all the characters were just manifestations of different pieces in his schizophrenic personality as he fell into a tortured madness of self-detention. The Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club. Oh. Yeah. I see. Nice. I'm not good at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Emily has the real talent here. <laughs> Apparently. Um, so your fact inspired me to do some searching into other notable reviews and reviewers. Um, and that eventually led me to this fantastic thing called the Hatchet Job of the Year Awards. <laughs> so it's held by, or was held by, a British literary review website called The Omnivore. Um, and they describe it in their official manifesto as, in quotes, a crusade against dullness, deference, and lazy thinking. <laughs> it rewards critics who have the courage to over turn received opinion and who do so with style most of all it is a public celebration of that most underpaid and undervalued form of journalism the book review <laughs> so it only ran for a short stint uh unfortunately between 2012 and 2014 though i do really hope it returns not only for the vital purpose that it serves in recognizing the most deliciously scathing literary reviews but also because the ceremony itself is really ridiculous so per the Omnivore's website, uh, the awards entail a winner carving a book cake with what appears to be a spray-painted gold hatchet, and their prize is a year's supply of potted shrimp. Huh. So I didn't know what, what? that was yeah, please explain. <laughs> first saw. Apparently, it's a British cuisine thing, um, and it's shrimp prepared in a pot with nutmeg and butter. Um, and tangentially literary, it was apparently a favorite dish of Ian Fleming and subsequently also of James Bond. So potted shrimp. There you have it, potted shrimp. Oh, because he always says, "I'll have my shrimp potted, not stirred." Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not See? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. So I looked into some previous winners and runners-up, um, and I didn't actually expect to see any recognizable authors among the award-winning criticisms, but apparently the organizers strictly nominated reviews uh, on the works of well-established authors who, in quotes, could take the criticism. Uh, so some examples um, were Salman Rushdie. Uh, he was nominated in 2013, um, and among him were also a bunch of other just really well-known or respected authors, um, a lot of Man Booker Prize recipients and people of that caliber. Um, and in fact, actually, the most recent winner of the prize uh, wrote a review of Morrissey's, the band leader of the Smiths, um, of his autobiography. So to give you an idea of the caliber of witty, scornful prose that is deserving of the Hatchet Job Award, here's an excerpt from A.A. A. Gill's review of Morrissey's autobiography, published in the British newspaper, The Sunday Times. So he says of Morrissey, in quotes, he is made up for being alive by having a photograph of himself pretending to be dead on the cover. <laughs> the book's publication was late, and trade gossip has it that Steve insisted on each and every bookshop taking a minimum order of two dozen, misunderstanding how modern publishing works. But this is not unsurprising when you read the book. He is constantly moaning about record producers not pressing enough discs to get him to number one. What is surprising is that any publisher would want to publish the book, not because it is any worse than a lot of other pop memoirs, but because Morrissey is plainly the most ornery, cantankerous, entitled, whinging, self-martyred human being who ever drew breath. And those are just his good qualities. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This week I learned that nobody in Paris liked the Eiffel Tower when it was first built, with one Parisian going so far as to call it, quote, a half-built factory pipe, a carcass waiting to be fleshed out, and a whole-riddled suppository. Whoa. <laughs> Harsh words. First off, I think it's probably fair to say that nobody wants a suppository shaped like the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> I just feel like we should clear the air. But so, so the Eiffel Tower, which was designed and built by engineers working for Gustav Eiffel's company, was intended to serve as the entrance to the 1889 World's Fair, which was held in Paris to celebrate the centennial of the French Revolution. 
The then-modern, rough, and industrial design stood in stark contrast to the architecture of the rest of Paris. However, in his presentation to the French Society of Civil Engineers, Eiffel said of the tower that would bear his name, quote, not only the art of the modern engineer, but also the century of industry and science in which we are living, the great scientific movement of the 18th century, and the revolution of 1789, to which this monument will be built as an expression of France's gratitude. Cool. So that gratitude for the design consequences of modern engineering, industry, and science was perhaps not as ubiquitous as he expected, as the opposition was swift and fierce with a group of artists, writers, and architects forming the Committee of 300, i.e. one member for each meter of the tower's height. They wrote collectively, We protest with all our strength in the name of slighted French taste against the erection (laughs) of this useless, monstrous, and ridiculous tower dominating Paris like a gigantic black smokestack crushing under its barbaric hulk all of our humiliated monuments, which will disappear in this ghastly dream. We shall see stretching like a blot of ink in the hateful shadow of the hateful column of bolted sheet metal. (laughs) (laughs) But despite these bad reviews, by 1918, the Eiffel Tower had become a symbol of Paris and of France generally, um, particularly after Guillaume Apollinaire wrote a national... Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. yeah, right. Calm down. Yeah. No, no need to deal. show off. No big deal. Uh, uh, <laughs> after uh, Guillaume Apollinaire wrote a nationalist poem. I don't know why. <laughs> I just can't stop. I didn't, mean to con- didn't mean to continue speaking that accent. Sorry. After he wrote a nationalist poem in the shape of the Eiffel Tower to express his feelings about the First World War. All right, so I actually learned a bit about uh, a group of people who might actually agree with those dismal reviews of the Eiffel Tower, sort of, I guess, depending on how you interpret this. Um, those people being sufferers of Paris Syndrome. Have you guys heard of Paris Syndrome? No. No, okay. <laughs> so uh, it's a disease that claims up to 20 people every year and disproportionately affects Japanese tourists. The symptoms include acute delusional thinking, hallucinations, feelings of paranoia and persecution, anxiety, sweating, dizziness, vomiting, the list goes on. (laughs) And at the root of this malady is the psychologically distressing realization that Paris doesn't live up to the sufferer's over-the-top, highly romanticized expectations. And it's considered a very severe, adverse form of culture shock. Wow. That's the body's own really bad review of Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think they might have seen the Eiffel Tower and just been like, suck the blue, it's terrible. Paris is shit, and you're not going to. Sure. Was constipation a side effect of Paris syndrome? (laughs) It probably is. It was a pretty long list. So one thing that stood out to me um, right away was why the Japanese in particular, um, why are they more frequently victims of this disease? Um, And the answer to this isn't concrete, but from what I've read, it's thought to come from the image of Paris as this kind of perfumed, fashionably twee, macaron-filled wonderland straight (laughs) out of Amelie, great movie, Uh, which is highly prevalent in Japanese culture and advertising. Uh, Actually, so a quote from an article that I saw in The Atlantic, the three stops of Parisians' day, according to the Japanese media, are a cafe, the Eiffel Tower, and Louis Vuitton. So that kind of image what? apparently is very strongly conveyed. Because what will happen is then these tourists will visit Paris with this impossibly perfect idea in mind, doomed to be disappointed by a city that isn't traversed exclusively by cyclists with baguettes in their bike baskets, but instead by characteristically disdainful and indifferent Parisians. 
And this sounds pretty funny, at least I thought it did, uh, as a disease, but it's actually pretty severe in terms of its effects. Um, and in some cases, it requires hospitalization, and patients have reported being traumatized and fearing traveling as a consequence Guys, of the experience. Constipation's not that. You're honing in on one very specific symptom of a much larger disease. And the one last thing that I wanted to mention on this that I think kind of conveys the severity of this disorder is that the Japanese embassy in Paris actually has a 24-hour hotline dedicated to Paris syndrome sufferers and repatriates a couple of citizens under medical supervision to Japan every year. Wow. So it's, it's yeah, it's wow. a problem. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, not only were, I guess, like citizens and art fans not a fan of the Eiffel Tower, um, one other group of people that didn't want anything to do with the Eiffel Tower were elevator engineers. So <laughs> I was reading about how they actually uh, opened the contract to build the elevators to the Eiffel Tower, and they wanted it to be only a French contractor so that it could be an entirely French uh, operation, and none of the elevator constructors in France wanted the contract. Huh. The Otis Elevator Company, which was a U.S. company that had a European branch, offered... Um, and France said, you know what, we're going to extend the deadline to try to get a French company. <laughs> no French companies were interested, and they eventually had to give it to Otis. But it was just because the, the shape of the building with the kind of curved lower legs is actually okay. a very difficult engineering challenge. Hmm. Uh, similar, if you've ever been to the Luxor, the pyramid in, in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and th- those are the only elevators I've ever been on that ride up a diagonal, hmm. and the entire time you feel like you're going to fall to your death. Really? Yeah, yeah it, is a, it is an unsettling <laughs> elevator ride. Um, and so this was well before the Luxor was built, so I can't imagine that they were great elevators then. Um, but, but engineers wanted nothing. They said, we will not build these elevators. This is a huge liability. But the real question is, do the elevator door close buttons work? <laughs> <laughs> There's one other really large, famous European architectural construction that drew a lot of criticism. And this one actually uh, eventually failed. And it was called the Vilgemermeer. Um, or called the uh, the Vilmer, more more uh, kind of colloquially, and it was this modernist marvel of building a, a vertical city, and so the ground spaces were all open for grass, and then skyscrapers came up from them, in which the ground floors were businesses and the upper floors were housing, and you would never have to drive anywhere because you could just go up and down in your building and share park space, and everything was kind of made into hexagonal shapes and very like regular. And it was like distributed so that there were like spatially, um, kind of spatially oriented areas within this housing complex. And it was supposed to be the city of the future. They were selling off lots for like very, very high prices. And it was not far out of Amsterdam. And it became readily apparent that no one wanted to live here. <laughs> and so they, they had almost completed construction of, I think, more than half of the entire Vilmer um, when they basically lost funding for the project. Well, and it became okay. this kind of ruined city. Um, in the north of Netherlands. And I'll say that it's a really interesting story um, that I heard of through a two-part episode of another podcast, 99% Invisible, that did a a complete uh, kind of description of how this works. So instead of me trying to tell you, I could just refer you there. But it's a really cool story about how modernist architects made up this idea, and it was the new modern thing, and it was going to be great, and it was terrible, (laughs) like absolutely terrible. And some U.S. cities were actually starting to buy into modernism and modern architecture, um, and a lot of them kind of pulled back at that moment. Yeah, too. once they saw what happened. The other thing I found that was really interesting was uh, Business Insider compiled a list of the ugliest building by state in the United States. <laughs> and this is a, a disappointing list. 
Um, because every state just has some of these really terrible buildings. And some of them just look bad or like are weird colors. One friend of the podcast, the Denver International Airport, made it on the list. Hey. <laughs> so, they didn't like out. the blue horse? Oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> Something about it just didn't speak to the writers. Okay. There's one from Louisville, Kentucky, and it's called the Caden Tower. This was actually built by the protege and son-in-law of Frank Lloyd Wright, William Wesley Peters. And the building says that Frank Lloyd Wright's son-in-law gifted this monstrosity to Louisville. Um, (laughs) And so it's just this odd kind of brick-sided building that has a suspended lacework facade. And it literally looks like a metal doily was draped over the front of the building. And it's just kind of horrible. Um, And so it's just something about it is really grotesque and unusual looking. In Newark, Ohio, though, is perhaps the best looking worst building in any state. And that's the Longerberger (laughs) building. And it's literally a picnic basket. (laughs) It's an eight story tall picnic basket with weaving kind of the um, with with what appears to be like weaving wicker coming in and out where windows appear. Um, But as if that weren't enough of a suggestion, there is a wooden colored rim around the top and then two handles extending out (laughs) into the sky (laughs) wow okay (laughs) if you guys are interested i have a little uh mini quiz Mm. of one star yelp reviews for other famous uh sites and landmarks so the premise being that i'll give you guys the review and you have to guess the landmark that it's about is it Shrek's Swamp? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will give you a hint and that that is not one of the answers. Okay. okay. All right. It's <laughs> to get us on the right track. Let's do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So for the first one, a giant clock. I genuinely don't know what all the fuss is about. Is it Ben? Yep. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was still thinking movies and I just said back to the future. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I told you it's not Shrek Swamp. I'm not good at this, Emily. Okay. Sorry, big man. Whatever. All right. blah, blah, blah. It's all good. All right. It's all Next good. One. All right. The second one. I was pretty unimpressed. It's a ruin. That's uh, Coliseum. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a walk reaching the chapel. Oh, is that uh, probably the Sistine Chapel, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh. Apparently not worth the bit of a walk. <laughs> Uh, another one, uh, some rocks in the middle of nowhere. Stonehenge. Yeah. <laughs> and lastly, this is an easy one, but I thought it was funny. More like the awful tower. Hey. <laughs> All right. And with that, uh, we will start our quiz um, having to do, at least initially, with bad reviews of famous buildings. Uh, question number one. Conman Victor Lustig became world famous after he was able to sell what famous landmark twice? I want to say it was the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, I'll go with that, having no other answer to offer. <laughs> no, it was the Eiffel Tower. Oh, no! <laughs> and all these questions are going to be about the Eiffel Tower. Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and most are people who had either a very good time or a very bad time at the Eiffel Tower. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So question two. What nickname did the Eiffel Tower share with a world leader in the 1980s? So, a very pointy world leader. A very pointy world so, leader. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> well, that's not its only an acutely quality. acutely angled world leader. Which world leader <laughs> an is... An isosceles world leader. Which world leader is most like a hole-filled suppository? Qualities <laughs> <laughs> um, um, of the Eiffel Tower that are not related to its shape. It has rivets. How tall was Gorbachev? <laughs> right, it has rivets. Was 
<laughs> is that in the right direction? It is, sort of. What? <laughs> okay. Why does it have rivets? Because it has a lot of beams. Made out of? Iron. Margaret Thatcher! Yeah. Oh. <laughs> They're both, they were both called the Iron cool. Lady. Oh, um, there we cool. go. My understanding from many British people is that uh, comparing the Eiffel Tower to Margaret Thatcher is quite a bad review of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> um, question three. In 2008, U.S. national archery team member Erica Labrie made headlines around the world when she did what non-archery-related thing at the Eiffel Tower? What would you do? She what? didn't swim on it. So. Well, I'll yeah. tell you that I the, the U.S. national archery team fact happens to be true about this woman, but is totally incidental to the reason she's uh, famous for Eiffel Tower-related things. So essentially, she was a, a random person who did a cool thing. She is a random person. <laughs> who just happens who, to be. Who did a thing. <laughs> so not even not a cool thing. Not necessarily <laughs> a cool thing. Um, did she pole dance on the top spire? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay. Unclaimed. Okay. <laughs> uh, so her, I'll give you a hint that might give it away. Um, so her name is Erica Labrie, but after she left that day, she had a different surname. She got married on the Eiffel Tower? Close. She got divorced on the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> Colder. Okay. Um, different preposition. Oh, she was divorced? <laughs> she didn't get married uh, on the Eiffel Tower. Under? Above. <laughs> you guys expand your mind about what relevant to what is possible. She didn't get married on, under, or above the Eiffel Tower. Two! She got married oh, to the Eiffel Tower. Oh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> At least according okay. to her. Um, okay. Erica Labrie married the Eiffel Tower and officially changed her name afterward to Erica Le Tour Eiffel. <laughs> Um, and so she has apparently a condition uh, known as objectophilia, which is a psychological condition where people are romantically attached to objects ah. and often buildings. Like, for example, she would also uh, uh, had a previous relationship with the Berlin Wall. Wow. That must um, have been tough on her. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Uh, she, she's quoted... did, you, did you hear about that big yeah. breakup in 1988? Oh, yeah. yeah. You mean Erica well, and the Wall? Yeah, that, that, that relationship kind of fell apart. Didn't yeah. It? yeah. Um, there's actually a quote from her. It's something along the lines of uh, when Berliners were criticizing her for like basically having this romanticized, literally and figuratively romanticized view of the Berlin Wall, this, you know, symbol of their oppression. Um, she said, I am the Berlin Wall. You can try to chip off pieces of me, but I'll still be here standing, or something like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> just, like, really not... But anyway, they, yes. she and the Berlin Wall didn't really make it, so she ended up uh, getting married to the Eiffel Tower. Um, and I, as far as I know, they're happily married to this day. That's cool. Yeah. All right. So... Uh, if you wanted to see the Eiffel Tower at its tallest, what time of year should you go see it? I was going to joke, definitely not winter because it's cold. But now I'm actually thinking that that's kind of the right thing to be thinking about. <laughs> so I'll, 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 I'll tell you that it, uh, it can grow by up to six inches. Mm -hmm. um, so what you're saying is that in the cold, it's six inches shorter is that what you're saying, Rob? That, that would be... A <laughs> likely excuse. Give or take, yes. That is the right answer, yes. 
Yeah. Uh, so it changes its height uh, due to you know materials in its construction expanding and shrinking due to the temperature, uh, and grows by up to six inches from the winter to the summer. Um, so I could imagine this. This is in the quiz because I could imagine that it would, you would give a bad review if you go in winter and you're just like, it's not as tall as I thought it would be. In real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the 986 foot Eiffel Tower was the tallest man-made structure in the world from 1889 until 1930, when it was surpassed in height by what structure? Bonus: What structure did it beat out to become the tallest? So I, I think I saw this. In, in reading on this fact, because um, nice. in the 30s, uh, the U.S. built the the Chrysler Building in New right. York. Okay. Okay, that's my guess. Yeah. So that's the one. That, that's the one that beat it. Uh, so what did it beat out to become the tallest? That had been the tallest man-made structure. Mm, that I'm not sure about. So I know the the Washington Monument had a run at tallest. I think they were, because this was built in 18. No, it was built in 190... What was the World Fair? 1889. 1889. Okay. Yeah, I think it's the Washington Monument. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Nice. So the Washington Monument had been the tallest. Uh, it was like 550 feet. So it's pretty impressive when you think about it that they almost doubled the size of the tallest man-made structure from the Washington Monument when they went to the 986-foot Eiffel Tower. And actually, I, I had seen... There's an ad. I don't know if it was for or against the Eiffel Tower, but it had all the other kind of famous monuments in France... Yeah. stacked next to each other and it was still shorter than the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And it included like the Statue of Liberty. The... Which is not in France. But right. I, but I noticed included... that too, yeah. <laughs> I think it said like in the caption of that picture I saw online was like Parisian landmarks and I was like, that's not in like, France. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it What's well, between it the US from... and France. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess technically that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, question six. Someone who probably would have left a bad review if he could have Austrian tailor Franz Reichschild died after testing what invention on the first level of the Eiffel Tower? Was it a parachute? It was a parachute, <laughs> oh. yeah. He was yes. confident in his parachute design. He jumped off the first above-ground level of the Eiffel Tower and plummeted to his death. Um, and Bummer. the irony is that it probably would have worked if he'd jumped from higher up. Yeah. That was my times. first yeah. thought. I'm like, he might have just not given himself enough height there. Yep. Yikes. Bummer. Ooh. Question seven. After the Germans captured Paris during World War II, how did members of the French resistance damage the Eiffel Tower in order to piss them off? It's like graffiti or... Yeah. What would make the Germans mad? They put like a Hitler mustache on it? Like they do at the front of the lift cars? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you've said a couple things here that I don't know if you're going to be able to trace back that are like right on the money, but it's not what you think it is. I didn't say that much. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, something that would piss the Germans off. I said that. Hmm. Uh, you said Hitler. I said Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> then you said mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I said lift? Wait. <laughs> Back to conspiracy theories. I have no idea. You guys give up? Yeah. 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 They cut the elevator cables. Or the lift. <laughs> oh. Whoa. <laughs> um, I never would have gotten there. <laughs> yeah, so, so when uh, the Germans captured Paris, the French resistance cut the elevator cables so that the Nazis would have to walk all the way up the stairs in order to get to the top. Um, so 
one of the funny examples of this is that soldiers had to walk all the way up to the top, all through all, all the stairs, with a giant Nazi flag that they wanted to uh, hang off the top of it. Um, but after they had done that and come back down, it was, and after it was unfurled, it blew away because uh, it was too big, actually, and it was like too much <laughs> wind force on it. Uh, and they had to walk all the way up again with a smaller flag. <laughs> Uh, so, final question. Despite his vehement and public opposition to the Eiffel Tower, the writer Guy de Montpassant, one of the members of the Committee of 300, is reported to have eaten lunch at the Tower's restaurant every day. What reason did he give for this? Oh, I think I saw this. Because it was the only place in Paris from which he couldn't see the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> that is exactly <laughs> yes. right. Yeah. Cool. That's exactly right. All right, that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to follow us at Fax Machine Pod on Instagram and Twitter and at Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook. And please also give us a great review, not a bad one, on whatever podcasting platform you listen to. Thanks again and see you next time. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. bum, bum. bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs>